That's right, we're talking about generations within the church. So we talk about community and what it means to be in community with, uh, with one another. Uh, this, this whole series, as we talk about these, uh, these topics, it's interesting because uh, we're talking about living in healthy, healthy community with one another, and we're addressing the body of Christ and, and the church and what it means to, to function together as the body of Christ. And uh, I, I want to begin just by saying thank you for sticking with me through this, because these are the issues, you know, we, we talk about gender, we talk about race, we talk about ethnicity, now we're talking about generations. These are the issues that divide churches. These are the issues that people draw up sides and they either, one, don't talk about it in church because why? It creates conflict. What are the things they tell you not to talk about in, at home or at holidays? Religion and politics, Right. And so we're just taking a whole mess of things and throwing it in there. We're just, we're just saying we're, we're going to take it on. So I'm, I'm just really proud for uh, the, the heart through which I hear uh, different people commenting why we're sticking through it. We're, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to just be attentive to the Holy Spirit as He speaks to me about these, these things. And, and this morning is really one of these uh, issues that, you know, we, we go, okay, well, generations... Church, why are we talking about these things within the church? Shouldn't we just get back to Scripture? And in our earlier prayer time this morning, I was, I was mentioning to the, the prayer team that I was, I've been feeling that a little bit. I just like feel a little out of my element because shouldn't we like be taking full chapters of Scripture and just kind of breaking them down and talking about it? And we love to do that, and we do do that. However, if you look at the New Testament, a significant portion of the New Testament was Paul giving instruction to the church about how to live with one another, how to live in relationship with one another. And so we can use the scriptures that are there as guidelines and instructional ways for us to look at our own culture and our own place in time and say, how do we do church together? How do we function together? So it's, it's not as though it's... Uh, unbiblical, or we're taking a break from the Bible in order to talk about these things. No, not at all. This is right in the heart of the things that Paul addressed in the early church, that we have to look at how are we following Jesus in our day, within our culture? How are we taking what the scriptures say and trying to understand what does that mean for me in relationship to you and how we, how we can function together? So these, these are the things that people get hurt feelings. There's changes in leaderships, uh, church splits. These are not small issues, but they're very important issues and they're the very type of issues that the Spirit wants to address with us as a church body, as a church family. And if you're a guest, I want to just say, welcome, <laughs> you know, welcome as we hammer some of this out, because it's an important thing that as we learn to function and live and support one another, some of you may have seen this, it's, it goes back a, a ways, it's uh, it was put together by a man named uh, Carl George, and what he put together is all of the one another statements of the New Testament. One another. And the one another's are things that we are instructed to do either with or for one another. There's 59 of them. 59 passages that tell us this is how we should act towards one another or things that we should do for 
one another. So, for example, it begins in John, it begins with Jesus, of course, saying over and over, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six of these statements, love one another. You think that's important to Jesus? It's important. He says it over and over, love one another. But it goes on from there. Uh, Romans, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Uh, another one in Romans, greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, we don't do that quite as much, you know, maybe an air kiss, you know. Uh, but the concept, you know, embrace one another, right? And bless one another as you, as you meet one another. Um, uh, have equal concern for one another, 1 Corinthians. Serve one another in love, Galatians. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. So don't, certain things we shouldn't do. That's also in Galatians. Uh, Ephesians 4, forgiving each other or forgiving one another. On and on the list goes. I actually have a few copies of these if, if you're needing to reference it, but it's uh, 59 one another's of the New Testament. So, so much about our life together has to do with these one another statements and, and how we serve and support one another. So, over the past couple of weeks, we've looked at the value of being a diverse community. And by diversity, we tend to think only ex- or exclusively of ethnic diversity. But there's so much when we think about diversity and that it's how I am different than the person next to, to me. And, and that's true for every one of us. We are uniquely created. We're uniquely created in God's image. And so we each bring a gift of our diversity, our, our time in which we are born. Uh, maybe it is something about our, our ethnicity or our cultural background, the place in which we were born. Some of us rural or urban settings, some of us from southern United States, others from north or Pacific Northwest or east. Uh, Some of us maybe not in the United States, so nationality might be different. And so we bring these gifts, our generational gifts, like we're going to talk about today. They are gifts that we bring to the body, and it's that type of diversity that helps us see that Jesus Christ is glorified from such a diverse group of people. In fact, that's at the core of, of one of the things that we're looking at, is that the reason that we celebrate how we're different, and we don't shy away from it or minimize it, is because it's, it's kind of like with Job when he went before, uh, or when the Satan went before God. He said of, Satan was accusing God of being so gracious to people that no wonder they follow you. No wonder people love you because you're so good to them and, and gracious. And, and God said, no, I, I have a servant. In fact, Job, uh, my servant Job will follow me even, you know, even if he faces hardship. And so God open the door for Satan to be able to bring hardship upon Job's life. And Job went through the worst kinds of hardship, the most difficult trials, loss of family and his possessions and physical trials, every type of trial you could imagine. But the accuser was coming and saying, well, he only loves you because you're good to him. And in the end, Job was faithful to God. There was some correction that came, but Job showed himself to be faithful to God, and God restored into him and in his life. You know, it's the same way that the accuser comes before God, and he says, listen, the only reason your church gets along is because they just align themselves one with one another in the same, same groupings. But you try and get your church around uh, any type of diversity, it's going to be just like the world around them. There's going to be, there's going to be splits, there's going to be accusations, there's going to be divisions within the body. And, and uh, that's the accusation of the enemy against God and his church. 
And you know what the body does is all throughout the world what we do is we come together under the banner of Jesus Christ and we celebrate our differences and we say, no, it's because of who Jesus is that we can gather together under one name, under one headship, even though we have so many diverse backgrounds. Our common rallying point isn't our ethnicity, it's not our socioeconomic status, it's not our gender, our common rallying point is around Jesus Christ. And because he's our common rallying point, because he's the one that we look to, we in fact celebrate how we're different. We say, you know what, your difference brings more glory to God because it proves to principalities and powers that there's not a single person in all the world who, who can't reach into that relationship with the Heavenly Father. That salvation comes to every person, to every tribe, every language, every, every economic status. The cross is for every person. The salvation that Jesus brought is for every person. And so that brings glory to Jesus Christ. So that's why we celebrate. That's why we don't diminish it and say, let's not talk about these things in church. That's why we, we don't push that to the side and say, isn't it more important that we don't talk about these things? No, no, no. It's important that we bring them up and we say, look at how we're different and yet how much we can unify under the name of Jesus. Look at how we can be different and every one of us can still glorify Christ. And so we're going to uh, continue this morning by looking at our, our generational differences. We, we talked about uh, differences in gender and, and how each of us bring a gift that we see in the church, male and female, we bring gifts. Last week, we talked about using our power or influence to lift others up in their position of life the same way that Jesus did. And then in this, this week, we're going to talk about, just like the video said, uh, boomers, millennials, Xers, the silent generation, the, the one that's greatest generation. Uh, we're going to talk about the different generations. And then how is it that we reach unity in Christ? How is it that we get to that point where even though we're different, that we can be one in Christ? So let's pray as we come and uh, bring this all before the Lord. Father, thank you that you have given us the gift of yourself. And Holy Spirit, we welcome you to be our teacher, to speak to us this morning. For one, we, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to do your work in our own heart. We don't automatically turn to the person to our left or right, or we don't think about the person who's not here and how much they need to hear something. Lord, we think about how much we need to hear something. And that it applies to us first before we ever think about how it would apply to somebody else. And so we allow you, we invite you to do your work, Holy Spirit, in us. That we would be ambassadors. That we would be uh, good news speakers of what you've done for us. And so Holy Spirit, uh, work in us. Teach us. Lord, I invite you to go beyond what I can bring up in this moment. And I pray you would intersect people's own experiences with scriptures and, and with your Holy Spirit's leading so that you would give them a custom fit message this morning that speaks to their life, each one. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me begin by just presenting a little bit of the difference. And I won't take too long on this because these resources are out there. You can find them in libraries, online, and different places. Uh, about generations, but I just, just so we're kind of in the frame of what, what do I mean when I talk about generations? Well, there's uh, a graphic that uh, we have up here, and I know the print is small, so I'll kind of give you a breakdown of what it talks about in terms of the generations. 
The, the one group that it doesn't have here, this one begins with the silent generation, which is uh, ages 74 to 91, but prior to that is what would be the greatest generation. And I'm taking this for reference. I'm taking this from the, uh, the Pew Research Center. Uh, there's different uh, years or age breakdowns that people present. They're common, somewhat similar, but they can be off by a few years one way or the other. And so there's some crossover here, I guess, is kind of what I'm getting at. These aren't hard lines. You may be in one generation, but you identify with another if you're on the tail end or the front end, depending on how that crossover hits. So the one that's not on here is the greatest generation, uh, born from 1910 to 1927. There are those who are 92 years and older. And so they're referred to as the greatest generation because of the great wars that, that they went through and also the Great Depression that they, that they went through. Uh, the silent generation, born 1928 to 1945, uh, they're currently 74 years old to 91 years old. Um, and so then uh, the boomers, born from 1946 to 1964, uh, aged 55 to 70, uh, 73. Those are the ones that, you know, most often in current culture, what people make fun of is boomers versus millennials, right? And, and the current saying is when somebody does something that they don't like, a younger generation, they'll say, okay, boomer, you know means you're out of touch or something that way, right? And so uh, the boomers, tr- huge, huge group. Right now, uh, so many retiring, and uh, that's why we see have had such an impact on the economic status of the nation. So you see healthcare now uh, climb significantly because of the boomer generation being in that, in that category. Uh, Gen X, born from 1965 to 1980, uh, 39 years old to 54 years old, approximate. Um, Gen X never got out of their name. So when they started looking at generational and started doing a little more of these studies, uh, they started with uh, naming Gen X. And they, they, at one time, they were going to call them 13ers because they were the 13th generation out. And then, and then they came up with um, a couple other names, but they never caught on. So they just left them as the X, Gen X. Um, they never gave them an actual name like boomers or silent. Um, the millennials, born from 1981 to 1996, uh, they're now 23 to 38 years old. Uh, so that's the category when you talk about millennials. And sometimes what gets mixed up is people will say millennials, even when they're referring to like high schoolers or anybody who's young, basically. They just use this big umbrella, oh, the millennials, and that's anybody who's younger. Uh, actually, there's 23 to 38, so it goes up to those who are just about at the 40-year-old age and then uh, those who are just at, at 23. And the other generation who are those 22 and under, uh, born in 1997, or under, that's Gen Z. So they really haven't been given a title. Some have tried to kind of put it at the iGen because of the uh, information age and internet, and that they are natives, that they were born with uh, technology in hand. So they, the internet wasn't introduced, or they didn't have to adapt to it. It was just there when they, when they, since they've been born. So for our purposes, I'm, again, I'm not going to go into too much about each generation because you can find a lot of those resources. But from one standpoint, I just want to look at, uh, and this, this is a little bit different than some of the other things you might find out there. I want, to, I want us to see some of the influences that helped shape their understanding of the church. And so again, I'll just do this somewhat briefly, but some of those influencers of what helped shape thinking of the church and how how it functions. Again, nothing too in-depth, just a few bullets. So if we think about the, the greatest, I'm going to group together the greatest and silent generations. Um, uh, church life, Pentecostal movement of the early 1900s, 
a huge influence in, in their life. And, and I would put along with that, if it wasn't Pentecostal, it was also the holiness movement that was also incorporated into the early 1900s. Uh, going through the Great Depression, uh, the Great Wars, and then also Israel's recognition as a nation. Uh, these are all really big things for these generations in terms of how they viewed the church and where the church sat within the larger scope of the world. So the Pentecostal movement, the holiness movement, Great Depression, wars, world wars, and, you know, very identifiable. For some of you, this is a little bit different idea, but very identifiable villains in terms of the Nazis, in terms of, you know, the Germans and the Japanese. And you had these enemies who, good guys, bad guys. I mean, it was a very clear picture for them. And, and the church's rallying point was oftentimes around rallying against these, these forces who were in the world and carrying out uh, the, the work of Satan within, within the world. So a huge influence that way. For boomers, a big influence was the charismatic movement. Um, and so that had a tremendous influence in the church uh, as they were discipling and, and, and growing the Jesus movement. Uh, another part of it was anti-establishment. So coming into the churches, remember that was part of the uh, part of what they'd say, the hippies, right? Coming in without their shoes on and they, you know, and just sitting down. They wouldn't sit on the chairs. They'd just sit in and nonconformist. And so the church structure, they were, that's part of that culture of the boomers was they were deconstructing structure throughout their lives. Uh, this, this idea of um, sex, drugs, rock and roll, right? It was kind of a rebellion about, against the establishment. And so that came forward into kind of church culture. How does that fit, fit into there? Uh, they're part of the war, Cold War uh, experience. So this heightened tension, but also part of the civil rights movement. So a lot of upheaval in the culture around them. And so that idea, you had this battle even within the church, the church structure and hierarchy, and then uh, wanting to see change, renewal, and, and the charismatic movement. So those were, those were affected in there. Uh, Gen X, um, huge national and church also because of the national influence in the United States, uh, influence and affluence. So throughout the 80s, of course, the U.S. became the lone superpower, right? The dismantling in the early 90s of the Soviet Union, the taking down of the wall. Um, those things, uh, I, I'm an exer, so I know growing up in that moment, like we were it, like the U.S. was, there was nobody else. And you just had this dominance. And in terms of economics, this affluence that came throughout the U.S. all throughout the 80s and, and into the 90s. And so that came into the, the churches uh, as well. So you had um, the beginning of some of these uh, mega churches. It wasn't just a few mega churches. It was started multiplying over. You see these. And that was part of the boomers' influence then into the church that as they came out of the anti-establishment and it influenced the church as well, Bigger, better, more multiplication, you know, uh, huge, I mean, massive churches. Willow Creek is one of them in, in, uh, just outside of Chicago. It's a town within itself, right? It's churches that size. And so that was influential to Gen X then seeing this affluence and how the church grew in that way. Uh, into the Cold War, also Gen X is known as the latchkey kids, uh, the first of the two working parents and oftentimes not having uh, that same influence at, at home. And so that influence then in the church too, the dynamics of they're changing, right? The church used to have consistent meetings that happened on a regular basis and starting the 80s and 90s that started getting pressure, like too many meetings, right? Or dropping kids off that began starting to happen 
throughout the 80s and then even more and more as time went on, less family experience and church became where you dropped off kids while the parents maybe did something different. And then also Gen X was church multiplication. And so a lot more church planting was starting to come about and a a, a key idea started around there. For the millennials, um, this 9-11 experience, that was part of their birth and and early years formation. And and, uh, so they have been uh, pretty much in an ongoing war status. And so the world is very unstable in that sense. The world, there's not a one power. There's not, the U.S. is in control and we've got, we're still the superpower, but there is a lot of uh, unease in the world. There's a lot of things going, popping up all around the world. And so there, there's not the same sense of, you know, governmental control There's with terrorism. Um, millennials empowered for engagement. And so They've they've have resources that as an Xer or a boomer or silent generation we didn't have. When you were younger, you were kind of told to, you know, sit down, wait your turn, and then it, you know, then you'll have opportunity. Well, they're very much empowered from a young age, one because of the affluence that their parents grew up with and now that they're experiencing, but also because of technology and the way that it gives them access to voice their opinions and to, to share their, their own experiences. So early on, uh, empowered for engagement. And then churches, uh, community, and uh, events. And so this is a different mindset oftentimes from some of the older generations. Older generations, the church was a place that you went to and you had these consistent meeting times and um, you kind of functioned together just as, uh, as family. And if the church doors were open, you were there. It was just kind of the idea that it's part of being part of a church was when it's available, you came and you attended. Well, you know, starting with, starting with millennials and maybe even to, um, into the Xers, but definitely with the millennials, church was more a smaller community. I have a smaller group that I associate and connect with, and that's my small group or maybe a, a specific group I'm a part of, but then I attend church events is, is more common. And so, uh, I can be part of a church, but I, I more attend. I look for the different events and things that pique my interest, and I connect to those events and not so much the, the whole church. And so that community, that sense of closer community is prevalent. It's also with Gen Z, uh, church's community and, and events, but also the empowered for engagement. So you see a lot of, um, this is one of the things that's different is that with the older generations, they tend to channel things through the church structure and what are we as a church doing? Younger generations is, I'm part of this group and I'm part of that group, and we're active in this, and this in the community, and this in the world. So they're not waiting for a church structure to empower them to do something. They're engaged and empowered to do things with their, their own uh, community. Um, okay, so just some real highlights. I know that's not comprehensive at all, but what I wanted you to see is the differences that we bring into it because of the time in which we were raised, the time in which we connected, and oftentimes our own spiritual uh, relationship to Christ when we were discipled and what influences we had when we were discipled. Um, so if you think about, um, you think about the, the earlier generations and the, the challenges that they had, and many of you would would say, yeah, so you see these, balance, uh, these, these challenges between political activism 
and the role of the government. And then in younger generations, there can be a feeling from older generation, well, you don't care. You don't care about the country. You're, you're letting it go. We work so hard to protect it from tyranny and despots and these wicked people who are trying to take it over. And, and so there's this tension that comes up within the church of the church should be more politically active on one side and another that says politics has really muddied the faith. Politics has really caused us to, 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 to not take on our own responsibilities. So there's a natural tension that's present there. Which one is right and which one is wrong? Neither. Right? Neither is wrong. It's the culture in which we came up with. Each has a gift that they bring. As older generation, you bring the gift of engagement with the culture around you and being able to say, I have a responsibility to learn about my country and, and as a citizen to participate and understand what's happened before me in history and the way that's affected and so to engage. But as a younger generation, to be cautious about the role in the same way. They bring this gift of, you know, I have to be careful because I look at Scripture and I'm holding Scripture with this high value and I want to be careful not to uh, blend the two of these in a way that makes my pursuit of political means the purpose of the church. You know, the, the church should have a role that's different. So, for example, my, my experience, and again, I'm I'm Gen X. I don't even have a name, right? I'm part of Gen X. Is my experience is I grew up a little bit of both. When I was being discipled in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, uh, the church was generally speaking, again, these are generalities because we're talking about generations, just like if we're talking about gender, we're generalities. But the church was often very engaged politically. Uh, there would be voter guides out in the lobbies and tell you, okay, these are the things that align with biblical values. Vote this according to this way. This is the candidates who align with biblical values. Vote this way. And so we'd have voter guides and we might invite people. There might be somebody who would speak to a congregation about how they can uh, rally or get involved in this initiative that's taking place politically. And so there's very much a, a connection between political activism and the church and the way that we can engage the culture around us. Well, as I've gone on over the years, again, some of the things you'll hear are just opinion, right? And all of us have opinions, and you can throw it out if you don't like it. Um, but opinion is, my opinion is, sometimes, and you've heard me say it Sunday morning, we relegated our discipleship responsibility to legislation. We said, I voted, therefore... I've enforced what I wanted for the kingdom of God into the culture around me and kind of wiped my hands clear of actual discipleship. There can be this tendency to say that the nation, my voting, is going to take care of enforcing biblical values in the culture itself. And so I stepped back or I haven't engaged in actual discipleship and engaged people and said, actually, from this side, if I disciple well and I help shape their heart into what God wants for them, and they learn that through Scripture, and they learn it through the Holy Spirit's leading, then uh, there won't be such a need to legislate their morality. It'll be something, an outgrowth of their walk and their discipleship with Christ. So there's these balance. And yet, if I don't ever engage in political, and I don't use my responsibility to vote and to influence as a way that I can through political means, then I've missed out on an opportunity to engage in 
the culture around me and use a tool that the Lord has provided for me to, uh, to engage. Do you see the tension that's there within the culture, the church in the church itself too, right? So we introduce these things and there's a frustration. Well, this, this generation doesn't value the freedoms that they've given. Oh, and this generation uh, thinks that the only way to, to, to really change the country's heart is to get the right people and the right laws in place and, and not actually to disciple them. There's different viewpoints that come about and we say, well, they need to learn my way. I, I don't want to learn. They need to hear from us. I need a voice. I, you know, they, they need to listen to me. And, and this can be the tendency when we talk about generations. What happens when that comes into the church? And this isn't the things that I'm speaking about just aren't in the church. Of course, they're, they're outside. But what can happen when we start doing this and we separate out generationally is we segment the church and our ministries start becoming not multi-generational or not uh, intergenerational, but just multi-generational. There's a difference, right? There's a difference between being a multi-generational church, which we are. We have genera- people from every generation in here and being intergenerational. So let me, let me highlight a, a couple things that are that are different. Here's, here's some differences or challenges if we are only multi-generational but not intergenerational. Uh, one, older generations have more money and resource to keep the lights on, so their preferences, advice, and past experiences hold more weight in the direction of the church. Or, younger generations are the future, so massive shifts in worship, style, look, and structure of the church are risk, and we need to change to adapt to the younger generation. Or older individuals are in leadership and they create the programs or resources for, but not with, younger generations. Uh, Younger generations don't feel listened to or valued or heard. Uh, We could develop separate church and worship experiences so that each generation could be in their comfort zone whenever they come to the church. You you see these things, right? These these things happen uh, within the body of Christ. Multi-generational, but not intergenerational. Small groups based on multi-generational churches, um, they're sometimes life stage oriented. And we do some of this. Some of this is healthy, that you can connect with people on a certain level. So we do men's group. Why? Because men get a chance to connect together. Women get a chance to get together. We have a young adults group. We have a wise guys and gals. I need a woo from the wise guys and gals. There we go. (laughs) So we have... We have generational groups because they can connect. They share similar stories and background. But listen, if the church is always divided, if we don't do intergenerational ministry, we've lost a gift. We've lost what God has given us in the beauty of one generation to another, passing along and sharing the testimony of life. And I don't just mean passing down because sometimes that's what we think. One generation, we put it all on one older generation, and we say, you are the ones that have to reach out to the... No, no, no. It's younger generation has a gift to bring to you about their experience and what it's like to live life, what it's like to live in the culture now and to be starting out and and trying to uh, integrate their faith into what life looks like currently. And so in intergenerational ministry, we're in the trenches together. Uh, We take time together. We talk with one another. There's, There's small groups that are shared life together. Because we each bring a gift and we can support one another in that way. Well, how do we, how do we get there? Let me, let me highlight something that is, is really true about unity. 
that if you make unity the centerpiece, if we say, well, we want to be unified, we want to be intergenerational, so let's just be unified in this. Let's, let's focus on unity. You know what happens more often than not is unity from a human perspective is, uh, I, I want you to listen to me and me to listen to you, and we're going to try to work to, to this equal point, and then we'll, we'll be unified in this. Let me read for me Philippians 2. 1 through 11. And you can see what unity looks like from a biblical standpoint. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So the invitation that Paul makes is to take the example of Jesus. When we talk about how do we unify, how does the body of Christ become one together? Is it by... by talking about why you should be validated and asking somebody to validate that point? Or is it being a really good listener? I mean, these are good things, but listen, it comes by humbling ourselves. It comes by submitting ourselves to one another, by not taking a position of authority or knowledge or experience over another, but humbling ourselves before one another. I know the temptation. The temptation is, listen, you young people, you don't know, what are you doing? I have life experience. I've, we've seen all of this. We've seen everything that you're talking about. If you would just close your mouth and listen instead of trying to be so active and talkative, we have a thing to tell you about how life works. That's, that's oftentimes the view. On the flip side, you have a younger person saying, old people, you don't know what it's like. You haven't lived in this life. You, your life is so distant from what it's like for me. You're so far removed from that experience that I'm having now that whatever you're talking about doesn't even have context for me. You don't really have anything to speak into me. And on top of that, you're disassociated. You're busy with your family. You're busy with your other things. And so you don't even have time to have a relationship with me. You just want to talk at me instead of sitting with me and, and sharing in relationship with me. So if all you want to do is talk at me, go talk at somebody else. So there can be these divisions that come up, right? These walls that get put up between generations instead of both coming together. And this is what Christ calls us to, humbly submitting to one another. Out of reverence for Jesus Christ, who he himself, though God, did not consider equality with God something to take hold of, but he made himself a servant, submitted himself to a humiliating death on a cross. Does that grip your heart? 
does that put it in context of the gift that you have is not given to you to force onto somebody, but to come beside and below and serve somebody. When we talk about generations, the place that you're at, the, the time in which you were born, the experiences you have, the, the, the spot where you're at right now and, and what you're going through, isn't for you to push on to somebody else to tell them that what they have and what they are experiencing isn't right. It's for you to come underneath them and just say, how can I serve you? How can I help you live life in the place where you're at right now? Based on where my experience is, where my generation experienced, and it, can that serve you in any way instead of letting me tell you how it can serve you? Let me ask you, do you see how it can support you and serve you? So this, this point, humility with one another allows us to bring the gift of our generation instead of forcing our learning and experiences on one another. Can I tell you, this is so critical for us. We are a church that is in this mix, right, of, of wanting to understand how do, we, how do we work together? How do we serve Christ together and come alongside one another? And so often I've seen it, the tendency of a, of a church can be where, and please hear this, those of you who are my age and older, 50 and older, it's not a statement of accusation as much as a reality of what we've seen over and over again. Is that so often one generation says, we are taking care of the church for you, the younger generation. <laughs> and when we're done and we are tired of serving in these roles, we're asking you just to take it over so that we can now not have to be so engaged and involved. And that's really not a picture of what the body of Christ does. What happens is it, it holds on to empowerment, it holds on to knowledge, it holds on to all of these things, and then when one group is ready to pull away, the other group is expected to, to step in. And vice versa, in, I've seen it where churches completely dismiss an older generation and say, well, we want to get younger. So now we just empower everybody who's younger and, and all the older generation, you just have to take a step back and you don't matter anymore. No, 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 no. We all bring a gift. We all bring a gift of who we are and our generation from what we learned. And the goal, the desire should be that we come in and we serve one another with it. We don't inform one another or tell one another why you need to listen, but we say, how can I serve you? How can I, like Jesus, be a servant to you? And we can love Christ together in that. If the goal is unity and we just say, Let's get along. <laughs> That's such a low bar. I've shared with you before, the low bar of the culture is just get along. And if that means being dismissive or not relating to one another, just do that. Whatever you can do just to not have disruption. That's a low bar. And that's not one that we work towards in the kingdom of God. We say there's so much more that we can accomplish when we function together, when we live together in Christ, when we are in community and we bring our gift of who we are and our experiences. And we can serve uh, one another in Jesus. So let me ask you this, and we're going to receive communion in just a moment. I ask you just to, just to take a moment and reflect. What's the gift of my experiences? What have I been through? What did I learn as being a part of my generation? 
what are the lessons that have God's revealed to me about what it's like to live as, as part of my generation? How have I seen God answer prayer both in my life and, and just by seeing how He's worked throughout my generation and the different ways that He's accomplished His purposes? What is the gift that I bring? What is the gift that I can bring to the body of Christ? To those who are my peers? To those who are younger than me? Maybe to those who are older than me? What is the gift that I can bring to serve those around me? As we come to a time of communion, this is an invitation for us as we think over the next few weeks and even months about how are we as a church going to move from being a multi-generational church to an intergenerational church? How are we going to work out mentorships and small groups in ways that can help us blend more and support one another? How my story and your story and we can share those things and the great resource and gift that God has given to each of us in our lives. How we can work on that to share that in ways that builds us up. I believe that God has great ideas for us. (laughs) I believe that God is so smart and has so many fantastic ways that He wants to help us be an intergenerational congregation. And can you picture it? I can picture it where life is being shared over a cup of coffee or a smoothie or whatever it might be. And there's, there's discussions and, and uh, maybe it's a shared Uber or maybe it's an older person giving a younger person a drive in their own car that they only have five payments left on. I jest. But it's, it's part, of, part of us being able to come together and say, I have life to share. I have ways that I can connect with somebody else. And so I, I just want to encourage us to pray about that. Some would say, why are we taking time with these kinds of things? Why, why something that, you know, thinking about this? It's because these are the things, these are the things where churches divide over. These are the things where churches fall out of relationship with one another and they section out into this group and that group and then it ceases to be really a full body together. And so we want to say, Lord, not us, not on our watch. We're going to be a a people who says, I'm going to value each of the generations as a gift into my life. Not just my own, but I'm going to value every generation as a gift to speak into my life. And I want to hear what that is. So some of this, that means I need to learn how to ask really good questions. I'm good at telling, I'm good at advising, I'm good at counsel. But I'm not as good at asking questions. So Lord, help me learn how to be really good at asking questions. I'm good at at understanding my generation, but I don't know much about a younger generation. I want to sit down with somebody younger and just have them talk to me for an hour about what it's like growing up right now. What it's like with life in a country that's been at war since the day they were born. What's it like growing up when you're accessible 24-7? How do you deal with that? You've never known a time where somebody couldn't 
reach you? What's it like with having so much affluence and people telling you there's no reason that you can't succeed? There's, you have every reason in the world that you can succeed because you have the money and you have influence and you've been given education. So if you're not a success by the world standard, that's just on you. What that, what's that like? And vice versa. What's it like having grown up from such humble means and your parents not having anything and knowing what it's like to, to struggle in that way? What's it like having racial divisions and growing up in a culture where there was whites only or blacks only or segregated education system? What was that like? And how did you work that out in your own heart and your discipleship with Jesus? As a woman, how did you deal with having the ceiling? There were certain doors that weren't open to you. How did you not get angry or bitter? And how did you work through some of those challenges? How did you deal with grief and loss since your generation lost so many in the Great Wars and, and Vietnam and the Korean War? How did you deal with those losses? The younger generation, you have so many good questions you can ask. Together, right, we have a gift. and We can learn from one another. What's it like to follow Jesus in each of these seasons of life?